Well, starting today and over the next few weeks, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. As you turn, let me pray one more time. Father, you're the, the great miracle worker. You're the one that turns graves into gardens. I've been to that garden, that garden tomb. It's a garden now. It's not a place of death. It's a place of, of victory and peace and joy. And that's because of you. You're the great miracle worker. Lord, we praise you for the good news of the gospel today. That you're a God that's bigger than any problem that we face. You're a God that's more glorious than any pleasure we experience in this world. There's nothing better than you. Lord, I thank you that wrapped up in all of that, you choose out of love and out of mercy to communicate to us. And every time you communicate, when there's those thus saith the Lord moment, let there be light, and then there was light. When you communicate, life happens. Lord, communicate to us today. We recognize that we need something outside of us. We look within at the inner child that the world tells us to, we don't find a child in innocence. We find depravity, justifying our sins. And thus, we need something outside of us. We need your word. So Lord, as we dive into your word today, I pray that your spirit and your word come together to where he fills this room and does the work that only he can do of illumining our eyes to the truth of your word, of convicting us of sin, of giving us faith where we need it, encouraging us where we need encouragement. Holy Spirit, come and do a work in this room. Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind a cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, friends, we're naturally, I'm using that word intentionally, versus supernaturally, we're naturally suspicious of the clear teachings of God's Word. However, if you're a Christian and you've experienced God's Word, you've experienced trusting God's Word, you also have this experience that God's Word leads to great blessing in your life. Let me give you an example of what I'm saying. Forgiveness. You remember Peter in Matthew 18? He comes to Jesus and says, man, I, I'm up for forgiving people seven times. And we giggle at that now, but I mean, honestly, for you to forgive someone seven times, I'll give you one or two. But seven is pretty generous, right? But do you remember Jesus' response? I'm not calling you to forgive seven times. Seventy times, seven times. Now listen, what he's not saying is, okay, forgive them 490 times, so that 491, you're done. What he's saying is, is forgive everyone for everything. Forgive. This is the clear teaching of Scripture, Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Why? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't naturally believe that and do that. Like, I don't naturally, I, I'm, not, I'm not one of the guys that's quick to forgive, okay? Now, listen, if that's you, praise God. I love you. I'm envious of you. What I naturally do is hold a grudge. 
I naturally hold something against you. I'm not quick to forgive. And what's going on there is I'm suspicious of God's Word. Clear teaching of Scripture, right? Clear teaching of Scripture. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive someone. But we don't naturally believe forgiveness will lead to blessing. I'm naturally suspicious of God's Word. Forgive not seven times, but 77 times. Forgive as God forgave us. We're naturally suspicious of a supernatural communication like that. We don't naturally just embrace that. And I think, I think we're suspicious for a couple of reasons. Number one, that's not how the world works. Right? Like if I forgive this person, all these bad things are going to come to me. Okay? I'm going to be vulnerable and weak in front of them now. They'll probably take advantage of me in the future. Or because it costs me something. Like, like forgiveness costs, right? I mean, at the very least, it costs you emotionally. And if you're one of the bitter ones like me, you know that it's hard to forgive, right? It, it costs something to forgive someone. So I, don't, I think that's why we don't naturally believe the clear teachings of God's Word. We're suspicious of it. Now listen, we're talking about forgiveness just functioning in life. I mean, forget about the, the high, crazy doctrines that the Bible teaches us. We're at Christmas time, so incarnation. That's a clear teaching of Scripture. That God took the form of a human, was born of a virgin in this manger, which is probably a cave, and then He lived this perfect life, never sinning against His parents, living a perfect life so that He could be this, this Lamb of God, this unblemished sacrifice, coming out of love but satisfying the just wrath of God. And, and that's not even the end of the story. He dies for us. But the great part of the story is this other crazy miracle that He rises from the dead victorious over sin and death. So if you're suspicious of forgiveness, friend, there's this whole other category. And we're talking about John today. So we're talking about his dad going priest into the temple. An angel appears. He's going to be born. He fulfills all these prophecies. He makes the way, preparing the way for the Lord. Listen, if we're suspicious of something like forgive one another, there's all these other things in God's Word, clear teachings of the Scripture that we're going to be suspicious of. But today we're going to look at the birth of John the Baptist. We're going to look at it as a lead up to Jesus' birth. But the message of his birth is really about believing the Word of God. This theme is woven all the way throughout this story of trusting and believing in the Word of God. This passage is going to call us to believe that God's Word is accurate, to believe the promises of God's Word, to bless God for His Word, and then actually to sing to God for the promises of His Word. But again, we're naturally suspicious of His Word. So that's the challenge of this passage is even though maybe some of us have this experience of being blessed by God's Word, we're still fallen. And this is what it's going to call us to today. So let me start with Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many of you have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good for me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The first thing I want you to see is this opening section is Luke's purpose, but it's a call to believe that God's word is accurate. 
Now, what he's doing here simply is setting the purpose of his book. Now, if you know anything about this gospel and about this author, there's actually, this is a two-parter, okay? The gospel of Luke is meant to go with the book of Acts. This great story about the early church. They're, they're meant to go together. And so what applies here in the first four verses to the gospel also applies to the book of Acts. And what he's saying there, this is his purpose. He's trying to tell this theological story. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. This is not some like 900-page tome on George Washington or something, okay? Like how we understand certain academic histories today. This is a theological work telling how God is operating you know, in these historical moments. Now, in that, like you do in any book, there's an editing process, okay? So some things don't make it in. Like it would be impossible to tell everything about Christ. It would be impossible in Acts to tell everything about that first generation of the early church. But he has a purpose behind it. He's trying to tell a theological story. He's trying to tell us something about God with this story. So he picks certain accounts. He picks certain verses. He puts them all in an order. It goes through this editing process, okay? Now, the reason why I camp out on that is to highlight something here, that even though he goes through an editing process, we should in no way think that this is somehow untrue or inaccurate because he clearly says here at the outset that this is an orderly account. What he's trying to say is, is what I'm telling you is accurate. You can trust it. You can believe it. Therefore, we're to believe the gospel of Luke is accurate. This is God's word, and thus it is accurate. I'm saying that in that way because in previous generations, the old uh, liberal Barthian neo-Orthodox theologians, what they were trying to do was, is they had this experiment of trying to to separate truth in in a certain way, in a certain way that I think is very unbiblical. They they would say, listen, something doesn't necessarily have to be historically true or factually true in order to be spiritually true. So they could say, yes, 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 you should forgive someone. And there's all this sociological and psychological data to support that. Your life will go well for, with you, for you if you're a forgiving person. Great. You, you don't have to believe all the incarnation stuff. Or they would say, yes, yes, you can be right with God. Yeah, but yeah, I believe in the cross and all that. But you don't have to really believe that he rose from the dead. Are, are you tracking with me? L- listen, the Bible doesn't let you do that. Luke doesn't let you do that here. He's saying, listen, these things are historically accurate. And that's important to him because all of that is a ground for what is more important, which is the theological truth. So he's calling you to repent and believe. Believe in the gospel. Believe Christ rose from the dead as payment for your sins. And he's giving you historical validity or ground to those claims. Are Are you tracking with me? You see, you can't separate those things out. This is accurate, and we're supposed to believe God's word is accurate. Well, let's keep reading. This is the prophecy about the preparer, starting in verse 5. And this is going to call us to believe specific truths about God's word, specifically his promises. Believe the promises of God's word. Let me read verses 5 to 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. What these verses are doing is setting up the story, setting up the narrative. Notice a couple of things here. First, Zechariah is a priest. As a result, everything's going to be 
played out in, in that context where he's carrying out his priestly duties. Second, notice that he and Elizabeth are described here in verse 6 as righteous. Now, listen, this doesn't mean that they are like perfect in the sense that they've never done anything wrong. Of course, it doesn't mean that. What it does mean is they're in this category of righteous, meaning that they genuinely believe God's word. They believed it to the degree that they lived according to God's word. Like, listen, these were good, genuine, godly, righteous people, okay? Third, notice that even though they were, quote, advanced in years, verse 7, they didn't have any children because Elizabeth was barren. So no doubt for them, as it is for couples today who desire children, this was a great source of pain for them. But it was also, no doubt, a great source of prayer for them. They'd spent probably years praying for a baby. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And, when, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What he's getting at here is that uh, is that G, that John was a preparer. Now let me set the stage maybe a little bit further. John or Zechariah here he is chosen by lot to burn incense in the holy place there in the temple. Think of this as a once in a lifetime opportunity. Okay, not every priest got to participate in this. In his lifetime, this is probably his one shot. Not everybody got this moment. Think of this as a very special moment in Zachariah's life. This is a very high moment in his life. Last year, uh, or last spring, Chris and I got to go to uh, to Israel. Got to go to Jerusalem, and one of the highlights for me was going to the Western Wailing Wall. Do you know what the Western Wailing Wall is? It's the most holy place for the Jewish people. It's this place where it was the western part of the ancient temple where all this is happening. It was probably the outer wall, and it's designated as this spot of prayer. Again, it's the most sacred spot to the, to the Jewish people. Now, when you go there, it's really a spot of prayer. So if you've seen people praying there, and you see them sticking things into the wall, the things that they're placing into the wall are, are prayer. So when I went that morning, I took little pieces of paper, and I wrote out prayers to the Lord. And I pray for the most important things in my life, my wife, my children, our church. And I rolled them up, and then as I prayed there, I stuck those prayers into the wall. This is, this is a similar experience for Zechariah. This is a special moment in his life. And he's participating in his priestly duties, but he's praying. This is a moment where he's praying, and no doubt he's praying for the most important things in his life. He, he's praying uh, for his wife. He's praying for the nation of Israel. And, he, and no doubt he's praying for their inability to have a child. And then this amazing things happen. A terrifying thing happens. 
the angel appears. Now, I say it's terrifying because his experience is typical of people who see an angel. It's terrifying, and we know that. It's typically what the angel says is, don't be afraid. And it said, we're fearful, and he says, don't be afraid. So there's something magnificent and terrifying about an angel appearing. So this angel shows up right here, and there's something about him that is just awesome and frightening about him. Now, listen, that's not the point of the story. Now, I'm, when I read this, I'm wondering, well, what was frightening about him? Was he big? Was it, was it bright lights? Or like, what was it about him? That doesn't matter. Let me tell you why it doesn't matter. Because an angel is a messenger. What matters is the message. Now, he's terrifying, and who knows why he was terrifying, but he's terrifying in order to get his attention. And he wants to get his attention, not to how awesome an angel is. Who cares about angels? What's important is, is the message. He's got a message for him. And his message is about John. Now, there's some important things to note about John. Number one, not only was Elizabeth to have a baby, but she was to, they were to name his name John. That's very important to the story. But second, he was going to bring joy, gladness, and rejoicing. That's what he's going to bring with him. That's part of the prophecy about him. Third, in addition to uh, the joy of fulfilling Elizabeth's and, and Zachariah's deep desire for a child, the baby would be uniquely great in the eyes of the Lord. Now, we need to push into that to really understand this. Get to the good news of this passage. The, the fourth thing to know uh, about this message about John is that in addition to be uh, the command to, be, to name him John, he was to be set apart. They weren't to give him any strong drink, uh, any, any wine. He wasn't having any sort of alcohol. And the, the point of that was, was similar to the Nazarite vow of number six, that he was to be set apart for something special. And then that gets to the ultimate reason for his greatness. Look back at, at 16 and 17. Verse 16 says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And then verse 17, He's going to do that by going before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah, and thus making God's people ready for the Lord. So John was a preparer. That's the message. God is giving you this baby in order to prepare the way for the Lord. So he had this unique ministry of stirring people's hearts with a specific message, thus softening the soil, if you will, for the Messiah. So verse 15 said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb. Now we need to be careful here. What he's not saying, obviously, is that this baby is somehow converted. Of course, that can't happen. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here by saying being filled with the Spirit, it means that he's going to be empowered in some way to proclaim the good news of the gospel. God is setting him apart for a special mission to prepare the way of the Lord. And listen, the Lord here, the Messiah, Christ, is really the end of this. Again, like who cares about the angel? Who cares about the message? Who cares about John? The message is the Messiah. Think of it this way. Jesus is the meat. John's the marinade. Maybe that does something for you. It's pointing to something better. It's making something else greater. He's softening the soil, if you will. His message helped God's people better understand Jesus' message. Skip down to Luke 3.3. 3. This kind of summarizes John's message. It says that, that he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Luke 3.3 3 really summarizes John's sermon. Day after day, that's what he was saying. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. You see, he wasn't dealing at all with the headlines of the day. 
Listen, these were oppressed people. Like they had another government and their soldiers in their town oppressing them. And he didn't care at all about the Romans. He didn't care at all about the headlines and those different things going on. Not to say that that was unimportant, but he was pushing to something deeper. He was pushing to a deeper problem, a deeper sense of burden and oppression, which is the problem of sin. He was getting to something more profound. He was not talking about them doing good works, but, but about people's sinful hearts. He was telling them that their souls were dirty and they needed washing. He was shining a spotlight on their greatest problem. He was pushing into that deep, dark uh, reality of the human heart. And he was saying, listen, your souls need to be cleaned. You need a Messiah. You need a Savior. So in summary, this glorious angel, he's making a prophecy about the preparer. And this is consistent with the prophecy from Isaiah 40, which says this Elijah-like figure is coming to make straight, to make way the path of the Messiah. He was preparing the soil. He, was, he had a set-up message, if you will, a set-up sermon to Christ's sermon that was to come. He was to clear out the brush of distraction so that Messiah plane could land and the people could hear it. And he was focused on their need of a Savior. The Messiah was coming, and Zechariah's barren wife was going to have a son whose job it was to prepare the hearts of God's people. What a glorious word from the Lord. Amen? What an amazing moment. You got to go into the temple, the lot fell on you, you're participating, and then an angel appears, and then you get this message. The Messiah's coming. We get to participate in this. We've longed for a baby our entire lives, and now we're going to have a child, and he's going to make way, the, the way for the Lord. What a high, I mean, there's no higher moment in this man's life. What a glorious moment, a glorious prophecy from the Word of God. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering about his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Oh, Zechariah. That's the wrong response, right? This is an unfaithful response. Let's put it in that category. This is an unfaithful response. And before you pile on Zechariah, and we're going to pile on in a second, we need to ask a couple of questions about what's going on here. And the reason why we need to ask a couple of questions is, is there's a tendency when we read the Bible that this is black words on white pages, and we just rush past them. Yeah, yeah, I've heard this story. We, we just assume things. We don't, we don't take it to like full color TV, okay? We, we don't like step into the reality of the moment. We don't really reflect upon all these realities that are going on. And as a result, we can just kind of quickly look at a story like this, roll our eyes, as this is so foolish and unfaithful, right? Like we do this with the disciples. I mean, they're like 
They're like comedic figures, right? I mean, how dumb are they, right? We do this with the Old Testament people of God. I mean, these people are crazy. They're foolish. Zechariah is a fool here. And so we quickly judge him, okay? Now, don't do that. Let me ask a couple, I want to ask a couple of questions to keep us from doing that. The first question is, how would you have responded? Now, be careful in your answer there. Be careful because my second question is, how are you responding to God's word today? Now, listen, the way you're responding to God's word today, that informs how you would have responded if you were Zachariah in that temple that day, right? Now, listen, he's a fool. He's unfaithful. The reality of it is, don't we identify with him, right? Like, how are we responding to God's word? Now, now maybe you're better at this than me. But if I'm honest, I would have responded the exact same way. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Cool. You're an angel. It's amazing. We're seeing an angel. It's incredible. But I'm an old man. This is not how the world works, angel. This is not how the world works. So like, I I can't believe this. I mean, look at me. I'm old. This can't be true. I can't really believe this. I'm suspicious of this because this is not how the world works. How crazy of a response is that to say to an angel? Are you with me? But isn't that to how we respond to God's word? Again, maybe you're better at this than me, but is that how you respond to God's word? Are you suspicious of it like Zechariah was suspicious of it? Don't we point to all these reasons why these things can't be true? Like, like, like if I do this, I'm going to make less money. People are going to think I'm foolish. No one's going to like me anymore as a result of it. People are going to take advantage of me. How can I know this is true? I mean, look at my limitations. Look at my age. How are you responding right now to God's word with regards to your biggest problem in life? How should you respond to God's word? Let's look at Elizabeth's response, 24 and 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked at me, he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. A sweet response. What a faithful response. What a, what a stark contrast to her husband. She received God's word as a good gift. She, she joyfully, quietly, sweetly responded to God's faithful gift to her. Through the angel, God had made this bold promise, had communicated to them, had made this glorious promise to them, and his word called them to something. And Zechariah objected. He was suspicious to it. I don't believe it's true. Look how old I am is the reason he gives. But she doesn't do this at all. She responds faithfully, joyfully, sweetly. She receives God's word. Again, how should we respond to God's word? We should receive it like Elizabeth. Believe the promises of God's word. Okay, God's not done with the doubting Zacharias. Skip over to to, uh, uh, verse 57. We're going to come back to these other passages uh, in the coming weeks. But but I want to stick with the story of, of Zechariah and John the Baptist. So, so jump over to verse 57. I'm going to read verses 57 to 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives 
heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered them, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing to God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is upon him. What a blessing. What a blessing. This is a call to bless God for his word. Now, now I love how the word, the, the word is kind of intertwined thematically in this passage. Do you see it? This idea of, of word, God communicating, speaking, it's all just intertwined here in this passage. So God spoke, but Zechariah didn't believe it. Therefore, what did God take away from him? The speech. God had a word. He didn't believe his word, so he took away his words because he didn't believe that God's word would be fulfilled. But, but then he blesses them with the baby boy. His word is fulfilled. And then this blessing is, is so much more than, than just a, a, a baby for a barren couple. This boy was going to do what? He was going to proclaim God's word. He was going to use his words to prepare the way for what? For the word of God to come. All this word stuff is intertwined, but then it doesn't stop there. But then they ask Elizabeth, the world's words are, what should you name him? You got to name him Zachariah, according to the traditions, it's his dad's name. But then her words are faithful. What does she say? No, his name is John. So she communicates faithfully in response to God's word. And then God graciously, this is like Adam and Eve right back in the garden. He gives them this opportunity to repent, opportunity to uh, be faithful again. And how is he to be faithful? Through his speech. But he can't speak. So he does the written word and he writes it down. And he writes it down as this moment of faith in God's word. His name will be John. And then what happens? He's able to speak again. His tongue is loose and he's able to talk again. And then he blesses God with his speech. Isn't God's word a blessing? Friends, this isn't about John and Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is about something way more profound than that. God graciously communicates to us through His Word. And He calls us to believe His Word. His Word is a blessing. Do you see this? Like, listen, we are so naturally suspicious of God's Word, just like Zechariah. But we're totally missing out of all the blessing that comes from His Word. when We spend our whole time suspicious. Well, that's not how the world works. I'm an old man now, but like Elizabeth, when we receive it, when we view it as good, when we view it as a blessing, that's when we end up blessing God for giving us his word. This is a blessing. These just aren't words on pages. This is God communicating to us. And as a result, his speech is restored. Zechariah then takes it one step further. His speech goes one step further where he sings to God for the promises of his word. Look at 60, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 80. Verse 67 says, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, this is a song, 68, 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then verse 80, And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. What a glorious response. Zechariah gets it now, right? We're going to look at Mary's song uh, next week. And, and the Latin uh, title for that psalm is, is Magnifico. And it's, it's uh, the Latin term for how she starts her song that the Lord magnifies. This, the Latin term, is called benedictus because the Latin term, it's the Latin term for blessed. This is Zechariah blessing God. You've given me such great blessing. All I can do is sing back to you these praises, these blessings back to you. I spent my entire life reading the Word. He, he knows God's Word. He knew the promises of the Son of David would come. Verse 69. Further, he had read the words of God through all the prophets, verses 70 to 70 words, of how he would save Israel. The prophets said it over and over again, and he was coming not to give his people what they deserve, which is justice, but it says in verse 72 that he was going to come to bring them mercy. And further, he was going to fulfill all these ancient covenant promises of God, beginning from Abraham all the way through verses 72 and 73. He would bring deliverance from bondage, the greatest of bondages that they could ever experience, which is sin and death. Verses 74 and 75. You see, Zechariah knew the words, but now they were more than just black words on white paper. They were full color for him. He was singing these words now. These words were not just something for him to roll his eyes about or rush past. These were words that brought him life. They led him now naturally to sing these things. They stirred his soul. He was watching all of this play out. Listen, it was as if he was holding this little baby in his arms. But that wiggling bundle who it wasn't about the baby, that baby lifted his eyes up to something even more glorious, to the promises of the Word of God. He was more than this cute, chubby-cheeked baby, but he was, he was the fulfillment of a promise. Every time he looked at that child, he saw the promise of God, that voice that giggled and cried. He knew that same voice was going to proclaim the good news of the Messiah to God's people. He was going to preach to the hearts of God's people, to their deepest problem of sin and rebellion against God. These lips, they were going to speak truth to power. They were going to call all men to repent of sins. They were going to proclaim the good news that the Messiah is coming. Make way for Him. Those little hands that, that wrapped around His pinky, they were one day going to take Christ, this Messiah, and they were going to immerse Him in the Jordan River, rising Him up. The Spirit was going to appear as a dove. God the Father was going to speak. All of this was going on in this little bundle of a baby. When he looked at that, he sang to God for his word. 
This was a blessing, a blessing more profound than we can understand. Isn't, hasn't Zechariah, his words, they've gone on such an amazing journey, haven't they? Like his words have gone from doubt to ceasing and now to singing. His song was a song of blessing, joyously blessing God for the promises of his word. And that's where the story ends in verse 80. Verse 80 is saying, and it was so. What a great story. Isn't that a great story? This week as I ran through this, I had in my mind, okay, this is Christmas. You need some sort of Christmas story. And I read through all these classic Christmas stories. And there's some themes to them. And I, and I like old Christmas stories, right? There's some themes to those stories. There's a nostalgia about the past. They're set up to kind of give you hope for the future. All those things are good. Like when you look at those Christmas time stories, they're set in a country farm. There's snow always around. We think of those things. They're about singing these songs that we've always sung, being with the people we love the most. Listen, going back to those treasures are good. They, they, they soften our hearts to slow us down. They give us hope for the future. Those, those stories are great. There's anything wrong with those stories or, or thinking about those stories. My problem was with this passage is that Zachariah and Elizabeth, they just had something so much better than those stories, right? Like they had something so much better than sipping cider around a fire. You see, their story was about the promises of the Word of God. They held in their hands proof that God's Word was true. That baby was part of the promise. The, the, the blessed future was coming. This story was just a, a small story within a broader, more glorious story. And they were getting to participate in it. That's what God's Word does. Friend, do you believe God's Word? That's what this is calling us to. Listen, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and baby John, it teaches us to believe that God's Word is accurate. It's filled with promises. It, it's a blessing and it's calling us to worship Him because of His Word. However, if you're honest, you're probably more like Zechariah than you think. You're probably like me in that you're naturally suspicious of God's Word. This can't really be true. This isn't really how the world works. And thus we don't listen to and follow God's Word as a result. What strange or hard truth from God's Word is He trying to teach you right now? Listen, there's nothing stranger or otherworldly than God the Son incarnating Himself as a baby. There's nothing stranger than Him doing all that in order to draw you to Himself. You probably have all sorts of people in your life that reject you. But not the God of the universe. Not your Creator. He loves you and likes you. He, the whole purpose of this is to draw you into His presence for eternity. What, what, is other, what is stranger than that? What is more otherworldly than that? What good news? That's a blessing and that's His Word. Friend, if John the Baptist were here today, he would challenge you to turn from your suspicion. He would challenge you to turn from yourself. And he would call you to lift your eyes up to something better. Lift your eyes up to something that is outside this world, better than this world, to the Creator, the Creator of the world, and He would call you to turn to the Messiah, the One who is to come. God gave John to proclaim the good news that the Messiah had come to save His people from their sin. It was promised in the Word. 
and now he is here. Friend, maybe the otherworldly word that you need to believe today is that you have a need. That you have a need of him today. And I know there's risk in that call. I know there's risk for you in abandoning everything else and faithfully following him. But there's no greater blessing than following him. Believe God's word today. Or better yet, don't just believe that it's true or believe that it's accurate. Rather sing that God's word is a blessing to your soul. Sing it today is what he's calling you to. He's calling you to joy. He's not calling you to, to pass a theological quiz. He's calling you to joy. He's calling you to sing it today. He's calling for your soul to be stirred this Christmas. Be blessed by blessing God for his promised word. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this moment to, to dive into your word, to remember once again the, the glories of your word. It's strange. It's otherworldly. It's not how the world works. Man, when we give ourselves to it, we find such great joy there. Lord, in the ways that we're suspicious of it today, the ways that we're hard-hearted towards it, in the ways that we just don't want it today, melt our hearts, melt our minds. Help us to, to see like Zechariah eventually saw the the blessing of your word, the good news that, you're, that you have sent your son to redeem us for us from our sins. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.